we had that beautiful decline that was just racing towards the bottom. And then it kind of got stuck. We are kind of stalling in terms of new cases per day. And that's not just us, that's across the country. I don't know if we're going to keep going down. And of course, in light of the circulating variants, it makes me a little nervous that things could start creeping back up again. Now that the healthcare system is not being overrun and overburdened, people are kind of realizing how fatigued they are and how a year of this has really gotten old. I mean, everyone's tired of this. We're all exhausted, but the public health measures are to fight this. So we can't forget that they're not the enemy. They're one of our tools. You've got to slow the spread of this virus so that you slow down the number of mutations, which slows down the number of variants over time. And we've got a planet full of 7 billion people that are opportunities for this virus to mutate inside of. And we've got to get those folks vaccinated. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and the COVID-19 roundtable is back. Once again, we've got a mixed bag of good news and bad news, along with some longer-term implications that we can't totally be sure about yet. Regardless, it is important that we continue to have our experts share what they know and what they don't, as well as project what may happen in the future. At times, they're processing, sorting, and adapting in real time, kind of like we all have been since this pandemic first began challenging our daily lives just about this time a year ago. Today, you'll hear us processing the latest news on how the decline in cases and deaths has turned into a plateau and possibly a newly unsettling trend of increase. Plus, we'll get more into how our healthcare system is doing, how statewide vaccinations are progressing, how new vaccines could help, and how what happens worldwide makes a difference for us in the U.S. and in Arizona, too. We'll get to all that in just a moment, but before we do, please heed the call of experts across the U.S. and stay COVID smart. While it is understandable that we are all tired, nobody is more exhausted than our healthcare heroes. For them especially, but also for your family and extended family, stay home as much as you can, wash up and mask up when you can't, and help shut COVID down. When we don't do these things, cases rise and more people die. When we do, cases fall and we save lives. Do your part slow the spread, be COVID smart. There's a lot to learn about in this episode, so let's get right to it. It's time to talk about what's going on with Arizona's rates of infections, hospitalizations, deaths, vaccinations, and more as of March 1, 2021. We've got some great people here to talk to you today. Returning in the seat, as he has since we started this darn thing, Mr. Will Humble from the Arizona Public Health Association. Will, how's it going? Happy March! Same to you, my friend. Same to you. Also, from ASU's Biodesign Institute, Dr. Joshua LaBera. Josh, how's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And the person I'm afraid to ask how it's going, but a wonderful guest nonetheless, Dr. Kara Green from Valleywise Health. Kara, how are you? Doing well. Thank you. Happy to report that I've hugged my father for the first time in a year after he got vaccinated. A reason to celebrate. Yes. All right, let's play ball. Josh, the numbers. They were dropping and now they're not. We had that beautiful decline that was just racing towards the bottom and then it kind of got stuck. I wanted to start and I still want to start having classes in person again. 
I was a little worried about doing it when the numbers were so high. And I thought I would wait till it got below a thousand new cases per day, but it's not dropping below that at this point. So, I mean, the good news is the hospitals have opened up a lot. There's a lot more beds available in the hospitals as well as in the ICUs. But we are kind of stalling in terms of new cases per day. And that's not just us, that's across the country. I don't know if we're going to keep going down. And of course, in light of the circulating variants, it makes me a little nervous that things could start creeping back up again. Well, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, she got on the video today and gave her update. She said we're up 2% in cases and we're up 2% in deaths. And that's at a level of 70,000 cases on average per day nationally and 2,000 deaths per day nationally. She finished her comments by saying, please hear me clearly. At this level of cases with variants spreading, we stand to completely lose all the ground we have gained. I didn't hear exactly what she said, but the vaccine has completely changed the assisted living and skilled nursing world. People are actually able to have visitors again. The residents in those facilities can now the ones that are vaccinated are starting to feel a lot better about things. I didn't hear what she said. I think she's a good CDC director, but I don't agree with that completely. I'll give you the second half, which I should have given you before I asked you to comment. She said, these variants, referring obviously to South Africa and, and whatnot, are a very real threat to our people and our progress. And now is not the time to relax. Well, I agree with that. So you cut off a little early, but no, I agree with that. And But what I will say is, at least there aren't any devastating variants that we know of yet. I mean, the South African variant evades capture by some of the antibodies, but still the vaccines are working on that variant. It could be that there's a strain that we don't know about yet that completely evades capture by the antibodies and even T-cells. So far, we haven't seen that. And that's always the big wildcard risk is that somehow there'll be enough of a mutations, plural, would have to be more than one, enough of a combination of mutations on the part of the protein that codes for the spike that it could set us back to pandemic 2.0. But I haven't seen anything like that. Josh, you guys work with TGen and yeah, I saw Dr. Ingo Thaler gave a really good lecture to one of the other boards I'm on, the the hospital association board. And so far, and he's tracking that stuff closely in Arizona and internationally. And so far, there's nothing devastating. Not yet. We need to do more sequencing in the state. And we're we're up to do that now, both at ASU as well as TGen and U of A, all of them are going to start doing more sequencing. I think we need to do that. But so far, you're right. Even when the vaccines are tested in areas that are endemic with these variants, they still seem to perform well clinically. So that's encouraging. But the biggest risk we have is just keeping viral numbers high. If the viral numbers are high, then we're constantly going to be making new variants. The best way to stop the variants is to just reduce the overall viral burden to the planet. Yeah, this is a global thing. This is a global deal. It's not an Arizona deal. The variants could happen that it comes, some weird variant comes out of Arizona, but most likely it'll come out of place X somewhere in the globe. And we're going to start having a lot of visitors the spring training games are being sold out and we're a nice warm place to come. So I think there's going to be a lot of people bringing things here soon. Yep. Kara, regardless of what happens, we still have a healthcare system that's sort of in a state of PTSD, if not worse. 100%. I'll make a comment that anecdotally, it feels like the cases are going up, 
I had three shifts in the emergency department where I only saw patients that had COVID a few months ago when we're still suffering shortness of breath and fatigue. And yesterday I did a shift and saw new COVID cases as well as some other COVID-like illnesses that did not come back COVID. So I also think that people are out and about. So there's also the regular cold, other viruses that people are now spreading around. And it's, yeah, I think now that the healthcare system is not being overrun and overburdened, people are kind of realizing how fatigued they are and how a year of this has really gotten old. I mean, everyone's tired of this. We're all exhausted, but the public health measures are to fight this. So we can't forget that they're not the enemy. They're one of our tools. And it's really hard to remember that when you're just tired. And I think we're also realizing that healthcare workers are leaving. They're retiring early. They're going to other occupations. They are just tired. You're not seeing any influenza, are you? I've seen none. We have a panel that tests for COVID and influenza. Previously, it was a different panel, but the one we use at our hospital is a combined panel. I have not seen a single case of influenza this year already in March. And by the way, that's what they saw in the Southern Hemisphere too, yes. Yes, is that is. the mitigation measures, now we know how to destroy influenza, not that Amazing. we would do stay-at-home orders or that kind of thing, but the masking, I think, is something that is going to stay for some people, even when this is distant memory, because now we know that the masks, if enough people wear them, it does a number on influenza. From a social perspective, the Asian countries have always been much more proponents of wearing masks and very common when you travel there, if people are ill, they wear masks. And it took a while for Americans to even accept that concept. We just thought it was so foreign, but now I think people are more accepting of it. So hopefully it will become a greater part of our culture for people who are ill. When I was pregnant during influenza season, I would wear a mask all the time. And my coworkers always gave me, everyone kind of gave me funny looks. And the first word out of their mouth is, are you sick? Because everyone assumes that you're wearing the mask to protect others. And I said, no, I just, you don't know who has some illness that they're trying to give you. So I think it's just a change of culture. You're exactly right. We were not used to it. Now, even assuming that we end up in a situation where cases do remain plateaued or even continue to potentially go down, our healthcare system still has two factors going against it. Number one, the number of people who over this past surge have not been able to get the elective procedures they need to be healthy. And number two, the toll this has taken on healthcare workers. We'll start with the part about how many people are out there that haven't been able to get the care they need because hospitals have been overrun with COVID. Well, I don't know the numbers, but it's lots and lots and lots of people. And one of the things Josh talked about at the top was what's happening in the hospitals. But if you look at the bottom line number in terms of the number of folks that are admitted both to ICU and regular beds, especially regular beds, it's about the same as it was during the peak. The difference is that a much smaller percentage of them are in there for COVID-19, which means that those people are in there for like valve surgeries in their heart or uh, prostate cancer that was slow growing or hips and knees. And a lot of those procedures are like you have the surgery and then they still keep you overnight, sometimes two, sometimes a little longer, depending on what the procedure is. So we're starting to make some headway, allow people to benefit from those procedures that they really needed. We saw after the summer surge in July and, and the very first part of August, from what I heard from many others, is that it took at least a couple months 
to yeah. dig out from underneath the backlog of procedures that people needed. And that was about a six-week surge, actually eight. If you count the end of June, all of July, and the first part of August, this is a longer one because it's all of December, all of January, and all of February were procedures, unless they were urgent and life-threatening, didn't weren't happening. So I don't think people will have gotten the procedures that they need till probably June, all in all, because you missed all those weeks of opportunities to help people. And it's not just procedures, it's also the routine mammograms and the, yeah, the routine yeah. stuff that people are just scared to get and just say, oh, I'll put it off, I'll put it off. We see people that come in with what feels like later stage cancer. Now, is that any different than it was two years ago by the numbers? I don't know, but it sure mm -hmm. feels like it. Mm -hmm. And we have patients still now that say, I wanted to come for my pain or my whatever, but I was so scared of COVID. And I know that it's here in the emergency department. So I just stayed at home and waited. Kara, when it comes to the second part of the equation, which is the staffing, which is the people who have been giving all this care, you're probably tired of saying you're tired, which <laughs> uh, thankfully the New York Times actually in conjunction with ValleyWise produced a video that can give us more insight for those of us who don't experience what's going on day to day. Can you talk a little bit about that? The video is amazing. It follows one of the ICU nurses at our facility and they put a camera essentially on her chest, kind of like a body cam and watched her go about her regular duties in the COVID ICU. And then they talked to her about what happened and what she sees. It is raw, it's emotional, and it gives you an idea of what healthcare workers deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. She works with the sickest of the sick. And so she saw death left and right. Many of us don't work in the ICU, but she expressed the same feelings and the same rawness and the same watching families suffer, watching people die, and not really knowing what to do about it. It put into words a lot of the feelings that I could never express and honestly didn't even know I had. A couple other elements of that. First of all, it really brings home the point that most of these patients died without their families. The nurses had to substitute for their families because families were not allowed in there. And it also brought home the point that Many of these people were personally very careful about COVID, but you can only be so careful. And someone out there in your family or whatever in your circle is going to get it and bring it home and then they would get it. And so the people who suffer are not always the ones who are out doing stuff. So it was really well done. It's a lot of multi-generational, not even households, but people that just interact. And if the teenagers and the people in their 20s aren't careful, they bring it home to grandma and grandpa. Right. And that's what we see a ton of. For me, it was also very interesting that it made me feel not alone. I think a lot of places have done different things to try and help healthcare workers. They implement a wellness program in case they didn't have it, and they encourage you to talk about it. But like so many other things, when it's a program that's set up, it doesn't necessarily work as well as something spontaneous. And I think a lot of healthcare workers now are, have some time to reflect on the past year and are realizing what the past year has been about and the fatigue and the exhaustion and where do we go from now? One thing that I think people could almost kind of sort of relate to is the idea of it not being in your job description, but you do learn how to use Zoom. I think the thing that is something that we can't possibly understand is how nurses in an ICU unit had to learn how to use Zoom in order to help families say goodbye to their loved ones. Yeah. It's amazing. The emotional roller coaster and the emotional support. And also in this particular video, a lot of the families spoke Spanish. So not only are they on Zoom, but they're also using an interpreter. Way too much distance for that. Highly recommended video, link in the show notes.
Seriously, dear listeners, pause this podcast if you can, click the link in the show notes, and watch the ValleyWise video produced by the New York Times. When you're done, we'll still be right here to talk about vaccination rollout, the vaccines themselves, COVAX, and more. But for now, please check out this video and appreciate our healthcare heroes. Let's talk about vaccinations. Will, progress seems to be being made. We now actually have not only county vaccinations by zip code, but the state released state vaccinations by zip code. Give us a rundown. What's the analysis? Does it tell us anything new that we didn't already know two weeks ago? Now, the state data that got released over the weekend doesn't tell us much because it's not age adjusted. So the beauty of what Maricopa County put out is that it gave the percentage of folks that have been vaccinated among those people that are qualified, that meet the guidelines. What we got from the state over the weekend is just the percentage of people that have been vaccinated, period. And so you see this deep, dark area around Sun City, all those 55 plus communities are in some of those zip codes. And so that makes it look like it's super high vaccination area. And maybe it is. But what you're really looking at, at least in that spot, is a really high density of people that qualify to get the vaccine. So what we really need is for somebody, and this is doable, it doesn't need to be the state health department that does it, is to go to the census data and put in the right kind of denominators for even if you just use the number of people 65 plus in that zip code and then reran the percentages, it would give you a better sense of Uh, where we are statewide. Because of what Maricopa County released, we have terrific data and information for Maricopa. So if you're interested in how we're doing in terms of penetrating populations by income, go to Maricopa County Public Health Maps. What I was hoping we'd get from the state is something that we could use in all the rest of Arizona, but we can't yet because the denominator's off. Josh, I don't know if you've had a chance to see the data that came out, but I think looking at something like, even if you don't know the denominator, 85255 has 15,000 vaccinations and 85004 has 1,100. Or a zip code in Flagstaff has 10,000 and the zip code right next door to it has 3,000. Doesn't that tell us something? I think we'll hit on a lot of key issues. So one is going to be who qualifies for you know the right age group. There is also obviously issues in terms of access because at the moment now, Vaccination is driven heavily by technology. And so if you don't know how to use a computer, if you don't know how to hit the refresh button, I mean, I've heard many stories of families that had four computers set up side by side, and they were just all running at once to try to get appointments. There's plenty of people in the community who A, don't have that technology available to them, B, don't know how to use that technology, and C, are working during the hours when those appointments become available, which is often midday. So if you happen to be home and you can run a computer at that hour, that's great. But if you're working, you can't do it. So we do need to come up with systems to reach a lot of groups that don't have those tools available to them. And that's especially going to become important as we get to more general population availability for vaccines. That's going to become a big issue. I'm an evangelist for this federal direct shipment retail pharmacy program and its sister program with FQHCs. For the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that's coming into Arizona this week, we're getting 56,000 doses that are going, hopefully, to county health departments for distribution and 16,000 direct shipment vaccines 
to Walgreens, Safeway, Albertsons, some CVS, but mostly Walgreens. I'm a big proponent of the direct shipment retail pharmacy program for just the very thing that Josh just talked about. It's a way of bypassing the state's website. Maricopa County has a vaccine finder that's a national tool. You could do it any time of the day. I hope to see the pharmacies and primary care clinics become a much bigger player in getting vaccine out. And Kara, I'm sure you probably agree. 100%. It has to be close to people. It has to be close to where people can get it. That way you don't have to have a car. You don't have to drive through. You can talk to your local pharmacist if you have questions and concerns. Uh, I spoke with our local pharmacist at Fry's and they were so excited. They said they ran out very quickly, but they really enjoyed giving it to people. And they said people were so happy to get it. One thing we didn't talk about that's news that's related to this pharmacy topic is not just that the Johnson & Johnson got authorized yesterday and then CDC recommended it, but the FDA also authorized a change in the cold holding temperature of Pfizer so that it can be in the same kind of freezer as Moderna. So that removes one of the barriers to getting that Pfizer vaccine into the community. Now, Will, you had told me that that wasn't necessarily a game changer because of the way Pfizer ships its vaccine and the quantities in which they ship it. Yes, but it's not a total game changer, but it helps. Here's the thing is once you thaw out the Pfizer vaccine, you have five days in which to use it. But once it's reconstituted, then you have only five hours for that part of it. So it improves the flexibility. But you're right. Once it's reconstituted and because it comes in boxes of a little over 900, it still lends itself more to these mega sites. Yes, it does a little bit. So here's the question. And Josh, I want you to try the answer first. Given the rate at which the pods in Arizona are vaccinating, which is a significantly high rate on a daily basis, given the amount of inequity we already see in vaccinations, is it actually possible that distribution to pharmacies and distribution to FQHCs can actually close the inequity gap? I think that it can. I think the high throughput pods are good for what they're doing, which is the high density population areas. There's a lot of people in those areas. A good chunk of our state lives in Maricopa County alone. And you need those sites to get those folks. But I think the state's aware of this now. They need to divert doses to these other locations and to other mechanisms so that we can reach the populations that are not in those high population areas. Well, some would say the state has been diverting the other way. They've been diverting towards the mega sites. They have been, but they're aware of the issue now. They're putting together plans at the moment. I, I don't know what the details are yet. Yeah. Thank you, First Amendment. Journalists writing articles is what got this started. It's showing that there's this inequity, something that they couldn't no longer ignore and needed to address. But let me do a quick math thing with you. Let's say the State Farms pod is doing 10,000 a day. I think they're doing more like six, but let's just give them credit for doing 10. Now let's transition and figure out how that would compare if we were dominated by a retail pharmacy type of distribution system. There's 1,500 pharmacies in Arizona. Let's say you could get 1,000 of them to participate in vaccinations. If you could just in the number of hours that pharmacists are there, let's say a 10-hour shift, if you could get five an hour, that's 50 per day at each store, what would that be? That's 50,000 shots a day. That's five mega sites running 24-7. So I think one of the things that people see on television is a big mega site with cars and 
helicopters flying over and taking footage. And that becomes a compelling narrative and human minds are attracted to that. But when you look at a thousand pharmacies around the state with 50 people coming in and getting vaccinated each day, that's not an image that resonates with people, but it's a much more efficient way of getting vaccine to people close to home, especially in areas that aren't super urban. So I think that the mega sites made sense when we were looking at occupational groups and when all we had was Pfizer for the most part. But now that we're into the general population and not the occupational groups, and we've had these more flexible cold holding temperatures and now three vaccines, one of which is a SNAP to, to store and handle. And I'm glad Josh is saying this is true, that the state recognizes that they need to start prioritizing more of the community vaccinators rather than the large mega sites. I hope that's true. From my own perspective, I'll be glad to know when it's not being controlled by a state appointment system, because as somebody who has now volunteered multiple times and watched people drive in, people who are clearly qualified to get the vaccine, but don't have an appointment, having to be the one to tell them they cannot get their shot. Mm -hmm. It's supremely frustrating. Kara, do you live for the day that somebody comes into your emergency room with a laceration or a sprained wrist and you could say, hey, have you had your vaccine yet? And would you like one? That would be amazing. I can't even fathom it, to be honest. <laughs> you know, we give out tetanus vaccines left and right, but I can't imagine. I think it'll be happening in May. Oh, that'd be great. That would be amazing. Right now you just walk around and we assume everyone has COVID, which is why we always use our PPE. But the fact that that could be a decreased burden would be great. Will, let's talk more about how that's going to happen because now we've got J&J. J&J is more amenable to many different situations, but we do have more vaccines on the horizon as well, correct? Yes, and I don't, for the life of me, know what the heck is happening with AstraZeneca, the Oxford partner. The UK have authorized that vaccine right before New Year's. The EU has been using that vaccine as authorized it, the 26-member organization. They're using it and have been for over a month now. And the trials have been impressive. All the clinical trials, phase three, that have been published, I got some of them up on my blog. And yet they haven't even applied to the FDA yet. I don't know, Kara or Josh, if either of you know, like, what the heck is going on with AstraZeneca? But- they have the biggest federal contract for delivery of vaccines. Yes, yeah, a huge contract, yeah. Yeah, and globally, too, they have lots of contracts. But they've got the biggest U.S. contract. Well, I have the graph here. I was going to say it's bigger than Pfizer and Moderna combined. It's not, but it's close. And yet, I can't figure out what's going on. Right. Josh, you had talked about this a while ago, how the AstraZeneca vaccine originally made a bunch of, can I call it mistakes in well, the phase three they, trials? They, they, were little, they, they ran different trials at different doses. And I think that slowed their process down. I think the others understandably went straight for one thing, their most likely to succeed thing, to get it done faster. And I think that was the mistake AZ made. And yet somehow... Now that Europe and the UK are basically wanting right. one huge phase four trial, the US still is not moving through it. Well, their higher dose works. I mean, I think that is what they learned was that the higher dose is the better dose for sure. So I think that's what they're we're going for now. We've talked about this idea of people wanting to choose their vaccine based on its efficacy. The one thing that is starting to become more often said than not is that it doesn't matter which one you get because they're all 100% likely to keep you out of the hospital and to keep you from dying. 
right. The best vaccine to get is the one you can get. <laughs> Whatever's nearby, take it. I think that's the most important message. And in fact, while we don't have a lot of good data on how many people are getting both doses of Moderna and Pfizer, past history, Will, tells us that when vaccines require a booster shot, a lot of people miss the booster shot. I don't know if that's happening. I haven't seen the data. At least so far, I haven't heard that that's a problem. What's been a problem is for a while there in January and part of February, people had a hard time scheduling the second. And that the scheduling part of it was a hassle and a problem. But I think so far... Most people are highly motivated to get that second dose. That may change as we progress ahead because there is some evidence that was published in, I think, Lancet this week, looking at data from Israel, which has done the best job getting vaccine out, that shows really how effective the one dose. That study was Pfizer. It wasn't Moderna. But on par with what we see with Johnson & Johnson, with the one and done, there are going to be people who see that, understand it, and decide to take a pass on the second one. And you know what? You could blame them. I mean, my board's going to probably be mad at me for saying this yeah. <laughs> because it muddies the water on vaccines. But it's the scientific truth that a one dose of the Pfizer or Moderna, at least from what we're seeing in this data that was published. It does look very encouraging. Yeah. It, I liken it like you're going shopping for something, right? You're going shopping for a food and you have 10 brands you can choose from, we're not in that situation. You know, you have one. So if you want it, you got to take it. And it's not bad. Whatever you get that's available in the U.S. is good. You're choosing from among three very excellent choices. That's how I look at it. They've not approved something that's not a good choice. That's right. They're all good choices. Josh, from the perspective of this many vaccines being this good, is that a little bit still pleasantly surprising? I would say we got lucky that this virus is not as clever at disguising itself as like the flu viruses. I think we're lucky that it doesn't do that. It does mutate. All viruses mutate. It's an RNA virus. It's going to mutate. But the driving factor for mutation for this virus is just the overwhelming number of infected people on the planet. Nonetheless, it still doesn't change coats every year or it's not constantly changing things up. And I think we got lucky there. And the other thing that really helped us, of course, is the stabilized version of this protein that locked it into a confirmation that generated a good neutralizing response. So a lot of science went into this. So it's not just luck and accumulated of years. And money. (laughs) And a lot of money, which allowed us to try multiple things at once. Normally it'd be one or two companies going after one thing and you'd have to wait and maybe they would be lucky, maybe they wouldn't. This time everybody went after it and we were able to pick the winners that came out fastest. Will, Josh has brought up the planet more than once. He's talked about the importance of mutation relative to how the world responds to this pandemic, not just the United States. When it comes to vaccinations, there's a very, very important organization out there called COVAX that we've only briefly, if anything, mentioned on this podcast. Talk about what COVAX is, what it does, and why it matters. Yeah, it's an international collaboration. It started a year ago at the very beginning of this when the World Health Organization recognized that the pathway out of this pandemic is with vaccines, but also recognizing that wealthy countries like the U.S. and those in Western Europe are the ones with the kind of resources that can actually buy up the vaccine. And there are many, 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 many countries, 94 of them to be precise, that just simply do not have the resources 
to actually go out and compete with countries like the U.S. and Western European countries to sign contracts with these vaccine manufacturers to get their populations vaccinated. And so they formed this consortium called COVAX, of which basically it's a mechanism to help provide a pathway to lower income countries to find access to vaccine. We won't get into the details of the two different pathways a country can go, uh, but it provides that mechanism. Up until the inauguration of President Biden, the U.S. was not a member of COVAX, believe it or not. Well, we dropped out of the World Health Organization besides. But on inauguration afternoon, the U.S. was back in the WHO and became a participant in COVAX, although I don't know if we've actually paid dues. We have given, I think, $3 billion, $3.4 billion to COVAX through Congress to help finance this effort to get the vaccine to lower income countries. And it's important for two reasons. Number one, it's just the right thing to do. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to be a wealthy country like the U.S., we have a responsibility to help those countries like Bolivia, Paraguay, countries in Africa, to help them to have some access to this vaccine. And number two, like all three of us have talked about today, you've got to slow the spread of this virus so that you slow down the number of mutations, which slows down the number of variants over time. And we've got a planet full of 7 billion people that are opportunities for this virus to mutate inside of. And we've got to get those folks vaccinated. So that's the international effort. It's financed two ways with money, but also I think in the end throughout later in 2021, we'll start seeing countries financing it through donations of vaccine that they've already paid for. Just a benchmark here I've got from The Economist magazine It shows that the U.S. has purchased, has signed agreements with vaccine manufacturers for the to the tune of 3.5 times the amount of vaccine that we're actually going to need. So we've ordered 350 percent of what we actually need in the U.S. Canada, they've signed contracts that are 11 times more vaccine than they need (laughs) up in Canada. UK has done the same thing. So here are these countries that have ordered three times what they actually need in the case of the US. And then there's places like Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Cambodia, Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, Central America, Guatemala, all of which have basically ordered almost nothing because they can't compete with rich countries to sign these contracts with the vaccine manufacturers. So I think COVAX is a brilliant idea. We need to participate in it in a more robust way, I think, financially, both because it's the right thing to do, but also because that's the pathway to get the global number of infections down, which will increase the likelihood that we can move on from this without a mutated variant that escapes the vaccines. Perhaps the worst kind of perversion ever would be vaccine tourism. Let's all go to Canada to get wow. a vaccine. Right. Fascinating yeah, in a very scary way. Right? Exactly. And in fact, I think some other data that you had provided, Will, said that 56% of the available doses have been purchased by high-income countries that only represent 16% of the global population. If this virus is ever going to be slowed or stopped, that can't stay that way. Yep, Absolutely. Josh, your thoughts on COVAX? I think it's a really important issue. Yeah, you have to remember that the virus does not recognize passport control. Virus goes everywhere. We learned that early on in this, and that message keeps coming home. I mean, the variants that arise in other places end up everywhere. So we need to stamp it down everywhere. I think it's impressive that they're trying to address the causes that the lower income countries can't get the vaccine, basically an economic pressure. Um, I think it's impressive that the 
considering how it feels like the world can't come together on anything, that we're trying to come together to get this. The other thing is, despite all this, I read somewhere, that at least with the funding that it is now, it'll only be 20% of the global population that will get it from this. So we still have a ways to go. And I saw that the first COVAX vaccine was given in Ghana today. All right, everybody, we've come to our wrap-up question for today's roundtable. The category is life with Zoom. We're doing this roundtable via Zoom, and like it or not, virtual backgrounds are a thing. If you were using a virtual background right now, and you could put on it a message to deliver to the listeners of this podcast, what would that message be? It's got to be kind of concise to fit on the background, all right? Kara, how about you? We're all exhausted by the pandemic, but public health measures are here to help us get to where we want to be. They are not the enemy. Nice. Josh, how about you? I would say stick with it a little bit longer. We're almost there. Will? Thank you to all of the folks that have done their best throughout this whole thing. Healthcare workers, people who are diligent with the masks, people that were persistent about getting their vaccines when it's their turn. The businesses that lost revenue because they were actually following mitigation measures. To them, we say thank you. I like that because everyone has given things up. It's a group effort. It is. Just like Will is saying thank you, we'll say thank you from all of us at Vitalist to Will, to Josh, and to Kara. It's vitally important that we communicate, that we make sense of what's happening, and that we make progress towards where we ultimately need to arrive at a broadly inclusive, equitable, and effective end to the COVID-19 pandemic. While it's difficult to say how much longer we have to go, we are getting closer, and almost every day of the past year we have been learning more too. Through science, through communication, through compassion, through listening, we can and we will get there. The Vitalist Spark will be back next week with a crucial conversation about education, one of the sectors that has been most in the spotlight during COVID. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There's a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released or listen to The Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.